Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, my guest is Dave Fuller. And for those of you who don't already know Dave, Dave is uh, with the Deputy Director of Education for the Coast Guard Auxiliary at the national level. So um, he has a lot to do with producing the public education content for the auxiliary. And one of the reasons I asked him to join us today is because I want to have a discussion um, along the lines of safety, but kind of related to what is the minimum experience and knowledge a boater should have before they undertake the Great Loop. So before we engage in the discussion, I do want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Beneteau, Curtis Stokes & Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, and Skipper Bob Publications. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with the business out of the way, Dave Fuller, welcome to Great Loop Radio. Hi, Kim. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today. Um, I do want to point out to our regular listeners that we have two Dave Fullers that are regular speakers for us. Um, so the other Dave Fuller most recently talked with us about the Down East Loop. Uh, this is a different Dave Fuller who is really one of the safety experts I always go to when I have safety questions. And as I mentioned in the intro there, um, I want to have that discussion on kind of the basics that loopers really need to have before they leave. And this is stemming from some discussions in our forum, but also on our social media. And, you know, more and more there's two schools of thoughts. Um, we have some people with a lot of information and knowledge and experience that they'd like you to have before you start the Great Loop. And then we have another school with people who are saying, don't worry about it, just do it. You know, life's too short, it passes you by, just get out there. And the ideal is probably different for everybody, but it's also probably somewhere in between those two points. So I thought I'd bring in an expert on education for boating and ask Dave some of those questions. So Dave, uh, if you're ready to get started, we can kind of jump into it. If you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your boating experience and your work with the Coast Guard Auxiliary as well. Okay, Kim. Um... Well, I've been boating, I don't know exactly how long, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years. Uh, that's close enough. I started out mostly in small lake boats. I grew up in Indianapolis, and uh, we didn't have a lot of big water there. We just had a couple of small lakes. And then later, as I moved uh, to other areas, I got into cruisers. I've been a uh, member of the Coast Guard Auxiliary since about 2002. I first started as a watchstander due to my interest in ham radio. I'm uh, uh, K4DMF, Kilo 4, Delta Mike Fox, for those of you that are ham radio operators. But uh, that's how that's how I got started. But I discovered pretty quickly that the auxiliary does a whole lot more than just stand radio watches at Coast Guard stations. Um, I had a long leadership background in private life in when I got paid for stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought maybe I could use those life skills and some of my training to uh, make a difference. And I began my quest to learn as much as I could about the way that the Coast Guard does business to save lives. Uh, I first became qualified in several mission areas and uh, served as an officer for many of the auxiliary missions, along with receiving uh, uh, one of the great things you get by being uh, in the auxiliary. You get to attend some of the Coast Guard leadership training that they give to their officers, really terrific training. 
And uh, that really helped me to reach a national level leadership position. And as Kim mentioned, I currently serve uh, one of my hats is as the Deputy Director of Education for the Coast Guard Auxiliary. I uh, remain very active in all my qualifications, including instructor, uh, coxswain, vessel examiner, uh, program visitor, which is our outreach mission. And I'm also the active duty and auxiliary instructor for risk assessment and risk management. Um, just a real quick note, my wife, uh, Nan Ellen, uh, first got us interested in AGLCA and doing the Great Loop uh, as she was approaching retirement. So we joined around 2010 and did our loop in the 2012-2014 timeframe. We always anticipated multiple years for our loop um, as personal commitments at home uh, really prevented a straight through loop. And that worked out very good for us. So uh, we did several weeks on the boat and several weeks back home. And uh, one other quick note, uh, Nan Ellen and I both are also members of America's Boating Club Atlanta. Um, a lot of you know that as U.S. Power Squadrons. And in early February 2020, I'll be sworn in as the commander of the Atlanta Squadron. So uh, I'm pretty busy with all my volunteer hats and uh, not a lot of rest for the weary with volunteer work. So that's kind of a little, little bit about my background. Hope that that helps, Kim. That does, and um, that does some great stage setting for the rest of the discussion we're going to have, and, and thank you for all of that volunteer work, um, because all of it is critical to safe boating, and we certainly thank you for continuing to do all of that um, on a volunteer basis. It's really wonderful, and we appreciate it. So we're seeing more and more interest in the Great Loop from people with less boating experience. I think, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the Great Loop was an adventure that uh, mostly only lifelong seasoned boaters even knew about, but it's gotten more attention lately. So there's more people with less boating experience is interested in the Great Loop and we're thrilled to have them. Um, but obviously everybody needs to be prepared to safely cruise the loop. So what are some of the best resources, a newer boater or uh, someone with experience that wants to brush up on their skills and knowledge? Where do they start? What are some of those best resources? Well, Kim, I've got a fairly long list and Actually, this applies to boaters, uh, whether they have previous experience or not. And in fact, actually, somebody that doesn't have a background in boating uh, may have a little bit of an advantage because they don't have to unlearn a bunch of bad habits <laughs> right. to learn <laughs> learn the new correct mm -hmm. ones. So, uh, but I've kind of broken it down into three levels of competence. And, you know, this is, uh, this is my thoughts on it. Others may have some different thoughts or... Others may have uh, uh, additional items to add to the list, or they may want to move things from one to the other. But this is my short list. Um, and again, I haven't really asked for peer review or input on this, but uh, it's kind of my starting point, my starting thoughts on it. Um, but I've broken them down into three areas. And, and the first area is the gotta know stuff. And these are the things that build the foundation for everything to come later. Um, second is the need to know, but not absolutely critical or not absolutely essential. And this second group of accomplishments makes you more competent and confident. And I think those two things are very important to an enjoyable loop. And then third, uh, the third list are the things that are the advanced accomplishments that raise your level of competence and professionalism to the entry level of a professional mariner. So let me start out with the got to know list. So 
before you can do anything, you got to know what you're doing. And so from that, I would say the first step is to acquire a basic education. Um, there is an industry standard um, set out by NASBLA. That's the National Association of State Boating Law Administrators. And uh, they specify uh, the requirements for content of uh, education courses. And those standards are built on ANSI standards, American National Standards Institute. Um, so there is a, a national standard uh, of content for all of these classes, regardless of who the provider is. Um, my strong preference is to uh, receive classroom instruction, and there's a long list of reasons which I won't take the time to go into here. But I would tell you that uh, if you can't get into a classroom and you have to get an online class, an online class is better than nothing, but it's not as good as a classroom class. There's lots of choices in uh, providers. Uh, the auxiliary, obviously, is a good uh, choice. U.S. Power Squadron is a very good choice. Um, there are a lot of state courses. Um, some of those are delivered classrooms. Some of them are delivered online. Uh, Boat U.S. Has a, has a good online course, et cetera. And last count I did, I think it was probably, probably in August or September this year, there are at least 19 providers of online education right now with, with uh, NASPA certified courses. Uh, that's if you don't count the individual states. And almost all the state courses are provided by Boat Ed, which is a division of Calcomay Corporation, and they're the 800-pound gorilla of online education space. You can go to the NASBLA website and look at uh, which courses are uh, NASBLA approved. Uh, don't, don't use the contact information uh, for each of those because that's the contact information uh, of the point of contact between NASBLA and that organization. Just go to each organization's website to find where their classes are for your area. It's really important to know that, uh, that many, but not all states, require some kind of basic education. Uh, and some of them depended on age. Some of them are phased in over a period of time, uh, like California and, and New York are good examples. Uh, they have very short phased-in periods. Uh, other states, uh, it's only just a, a born-after date and so forth. But just about every state has some kind of requirement uh, for basic voter education. And uh, the important to know point here is a NASBLA certified course has reciprocity in all 50 states and in Puerto Rico and in Canada. Um, so regardless, really, if the law says you have to have a course for legal reasons, I say that you need it for practical and safety reasons. So that's number one, get a basic education. Number two, uh, join AGLCA and attend at least a couple of rendezvous or more. I know that when Nan Ellen and I first started, that was a huge advantage to us to learn more about the loop and to get to meet and learn from others from their experience and knowledge. Um, it is much cheaper, it's much easier, and much better to learn from others than to make those mistakes yourself. Uh, all the presenters present there have been there, they've done that, They've already made most of the common mistakes, so learn from them. Um, attend the crawls, talk to the folks currently on the loop, ask them what, what's working for them and what doesn't work for them. Uh, it's a really a priceless learning opportunity. Number three, read the forums every day. 
there is a tremendous wealth of knowledge from a fine group of folks who want to freely share that knowledge. Uh, you will quickly figure out who are the authoritative posters and those who are not. You'll have to sort out <clears throat> what uh, advice applies to you and what does not. But understand that everyone has an opinion, and sometimes there'll be disagreements. So when I post, I try to deliver facts, and I try to emphasize in my posts that uh, readers should do their own research and make their own decisions. My posts contain opinion. I usually label um, it as opinion. Just the fact that you have the finances, uh, resources financially and the time available to do the loop indicate that you've made some pretty wise decisions throughout your life. And you can use some of that decision-making process even with unfamiliar waters. This is the important part. Know what you don't know and then try and rectify it. All right, number four of the, the got-to-know stuff is get a free vessel safety check from the local Coast Guard Auxiliary or U.S. Power Squadrons. Both organizations use the identical same program. Uh, understand that that is a U.S. Coast Guard program that is administered by the Auxiliary and the Power Squadrons. So to, do, to get that, you can go to Safety Seal, that's S-A-F-E-T-Y-S-E-A-L, safetyseal.net, if you put in your zip code and then enter your contact information, that will send a notice to the closest examiners in your area, and at least one of them should call you back fairly quickly. Uh, set an appointment with one of those individuals and get ready for an education. Don't worry if, uh, if you might fail, because a lot of the initial uh, inspections are, are failures. But you can fix whatever is needed, whatever you're short on or whatever you don't have, and then you call the examiner back for a re-examination of the things that you didn't pass on, and that will earn you the current year, year decal. You really do need to get that done annually. Um, the first one takes a lot more time as it's largely an educational experience for the boater. Uh, subsequent year exams go a whole lot faster as you already know what you need and why you need it. Uh, it's very important to do it annually as I often find things like burned out bulbs, uh, horns that don't work, and the worst one. Um, and actually, I've, I've done several AGLCA rendezvous, and uh, people I ask people to bring out their, uh, their life jackets. They show me in these really nice inflatable life jackets, and I say, well, okay, well, let's open them up. And they look at me like, huh, what are you talking about? So we open them up, and sure enough, uh, on about uh, probably 25% of them that I examine, the uh, cartridge is not installed uh, in the holder, and it's not ready for service. And the reason for that is because some manufacturers ship those CO cartridges not installed because of shipping regulations. And so uh, if, if people buy one of those and put it on and expect it to work, uh, they're going to get a rude surprise. So the, the look on people's faces is priceless when, uh, when I point that out. And that's one of the reasons you need to get that done every single year. Um, don't forget that the life jackets, uh, very important to wear those. And I'll, I could do a whole nother thing on, on life jacket wear and, and how we could make a difference in, in saving more people's lives. Um, all right. So number five on my list, this is an easy one. This is a, a free one too. Download the free Coast Guard app and it's available for iOS and for Android. 
It's got nine different functions on the home screen, including a float plan, which has been in the, the forums here lately. We've had some discussion on that. You can also request a vessel safety check. Um, you can get, you will have a copy, an actual copy of the nav rules on board. And why that's important is if your boat is over 39 feet, six inches, you are required by law to have that aboard your boat. And having that on your phone uh, counts for having it on board. You can also easily report missing or out of position aids to navigation. There's links to various state laws. Uh, there's NOAA buoys uh, data on there and a whole lot more, but it's a, it's a free uh, download and uh, highly recommend that you get that. And Dave, number before six, you go on to number six, just a question about that, uh, because there sure. was a discussion about float plans in our forum in the past week or so. Um, so explain with the Coast Guard app what happens to the float plan that you can create within the app. Is that actually being submitted to anyone, or are you, are you supposed to take that and send it off to family or friends, or how does that work? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you do not file that with the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard doesn't care about your float plan unless somebody's missing or overdue. Then they're going to use that information that provided from the float plan. But the float plan is filed with whoever you trust to call for help in case you don't check in with them. So the idea is if you're leaving from point A and going to point B, you uh, just before you shove off at point A, you have all this information filled out. And the great thing about the Coast Guard app is it saves all this data on your uh, on your phone. Then all you have to do is punch in uh, whatever few changes you make, like what day am I leaving, what time am I leaving, when do I expect to arrive, what port do I expect to arrive at, and so forth, the things that change. The other static things, the description of the boat and uh, the number of persons on board, all that stuff stays the same, so you don't have to keep filling that stuff out all over again. But basically, you would send that to a trusted friend. Um, when we crossed the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico from Carabelle to Tarpon Springs, we actually did two um, float plans. We left one with a friend back in Atlanta, and we also left one with the dockmaster in Carabelle. And then when we got uh, to the other end at Tarpon Springs, we called both of them on the phone and says, hey, we made it cancel our float plan, we're here. Right. So but, the app lets you send that electronically through the app to whoever you choose to be that person kind of monitoring for when you arrive. Is that correct? Yeah. And and you could do it just on a piece of paper. You don't have to use that app. You could mm -hmm. just write down on a piece of paper. But the more information that the Coast Guard has, if they have to go looking for you, they need to know um, the information that's basically on that app. Right. Thank you for clarifying that because I think there was some um, – um, misassumptions in the forum post on that, so I appreciate that. And I interrupted you, so go ahead uh, on to number six of the kind of must-learn before going. All right. Number six is my last one on the must-learn. I know this is a long list, but this is stuff that's really important. Number six is really, this is your homework before you even get started, and that's read as many books on the loop and safe navigation as you can get your hands on. We could probably do a whole a whole session just on books themselves, but I would uh, argue that you you should uh, take a look at uh, some of the AGLCA AGLCA sponsors such as Waterway Guide, Skipper Bob, and and a whole long list of, of other uh, other books that you'll learn about if you go to a rendezvous. It's another good reason to go to a rendezvous, 
And quite frankly, it really doesn't matter whether you have a paper copy or an ebook. And you know, a lot of people have tablets and they're putting the stuff on their ebooks, and that's fine too. But have those aboard your boat as a reference. Um, one book that I think that every boater should have as a reference is Chapman's. Uh, Chapman's has been around for over 100 years. I think they're up to the 68th edition. Maybe somebody will correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the last I could find uh, updated was updated, I think, in 2017, and it was the 68th edition. There may be a newer one than that. But in any case, the, the stuff that's in them really doesn't change much. Red, bright returning never changes. Um, the stuff about electronic navigation and, and all that, that changes so rapidly that basically by the time it's put in print, it's already obsolete. So those chapters really aren't going to help you all that much except uh, uh, in the fact of a history lesson. And as I mentioned before, if your boat is over 39 feet 6 inches, you will all also be required to have a copy of the nav rules on board. And you can still get a printed paper copy of it. And again, I'm an old school guy, so I like paper and being able to look at it, especially since the printed copy has the uh, the inland rules on one side of the uh, page and the international rules on the other side of the page. So it depends on which waters you're operating in as to what the rule is. So have that uh, have that available and and have that on your boat. By the way, if if you are stopped and boarded by the Coast Guard and they do ask you to produce a copy of the nav rules, you must be able to open um, the electronic version within two minutes. Uh, to qualify uh, as part of the carriage requirements. So anyway, that's my six. Uh, that's my six gotta haves. Okay, and so, that's great information. And actually, two minutes seems like a really long time <laughs> to be able to put your hands on that if you need it in a in a situation. Um, so I think they're being pretty generous with uh, with us giving us two minutes to open the electronic version if that's what we have. Um, let's take a quick break and play a message from one of our sponsors. When we come back, we'll kind of jump into the next level, the second level of things to know that maybe aren't as critical, but certainly would be helpful on the loop. We'll be back in a moment. Curtis Stokes & Associates is a yacht brokerage company that specializes in Great Loop capable boats. Curtis Stokes is a supporter of AGLCA at the Admiral level. If you're looking to buy or sell a Great Loop veteran from a trusted and knowledgeable broker, visit the company on the web at curtisstokes.net, email curtisstokes at curtisstokes.net, or call 954-684-0218. We're back on Great Loop Radio. My guest today is Dave Fuller. Dave is filling us in on some of the things that, in his opinion, are the, the must-know before leaving for the loop, and we've just covered them. We're going to move into kind of the second level now, which perhaps is not as critical, um, but as you said in the, the beginning of this, Dave, if, if you are confident and competent, you will have a much more enjoyable time on the loop. So this is the second level that can get you more towards that competence and confidence. So go ahead with level two. Okay, thanks, Kim. Um, so let's start out with uh, the first thing on my, my number two list, which is take an intermediate level education. And this could be a multitude of courses. Um, I would start with basic navigation because in the entry-level courses, they don't really talk all that terribly much about navigation. They tell you about the parts of the boat and, and how you, uh, um, uh, you know, the signs and so forth, all the things you have to know about navigation, but they don't tell you how to calculate where you are. And so in the intermediate level education, uh, 
some basic and intermediate level navigation courses where you actually learn the basics of navigation. And these are the things that teach you how to read a chart, uh, teach you how to do waypoints, how to do routes, how to design a route. So here you're going to learn the basics of speed, time, and distance calculations. Uh, so if you've ever read any of my posts and I refer to 60D Street, that's the mnemonic to help you remember the formula to calculate speed, time, and distance. And then, of course, most importantly, you're going to need to know how to determine a line of position, an estimated position, how to take a fix, and a long list of other navigation terms that will help you determine that where you are equals where you think that you are. Um, I'm Again, I'm an old school guy. I prefer paper charts for big picture planning, and Nan Ellen and I follow along with the electronic charts on paper. I will tell you that learning this skill makes you a better navigator instead of just an appliance operator. You know, if you're relying on your GPS like most folks do, that's okay because even if you have multiple use or multiple versions of GPSs, a chart plotter, a, an iPad or a, a tablet or a phone or whatever else that you're using, um, yeah, it'll get you from point A to point B. Um, but what happens if that fails? What, more importantly though, you probably don't understand how all of that works. You're just really an appliance operator reading what that screen is telling you. So. Can you do the loop without this skill of learning navigation? Absolutely. People do it all the time. But again, you're doing it with reliance on only one form of ability to know where you are. And I would argue that it's far better to have this skill and to practice it because like any other skill, if you don't use it, you lose it. But it's better to have it and practice it than not to use than to to not need it. Or if you do need it and you don't have it, then you're going to be in a, in a world of hurt. Um, yeah, I've heard the argument, paper's more expensive, it takes up more room, and those are all true things. Um, but in my opinion, for me anyway, it's necessary to use it for at least daily trip planning and uh, gives us really the big picture without having to zoom in and out. I would say that most of us are visual learners, and at least for me, I find that it really enhances my situational awareness, and that's probably the most important reason I do it, um, and that's something that's gotten pounded into my head by my Coast Guard training, is always have situational awareness, and one of those things that helps me have situational awareness is that visuality of having that paper chart in front of me. That's just the way I learned it. Um, you know, others may disagree with it, and that's okay. You know, everybody will have an opinion. But uh, I, I strongly support having that ability. And there are a lot of low-cost options, uh, including uh, chart books. You know, you can get them that flip the pages. Uh, the one drawback is if you do uh, rely on paper, you're going to need to get the local notice to Mariners, and you'll find that at the Coast Guard Nav Center. I've already told you where to find that. That's one of the things that's available on the Nav Center. And they put out a, a notice to mariners each and every week. You can go in there and uh, notate that on your charts. So uh, electronic charts generally update daily, weekly, monthly, whatever, and they will be more up-to-date than the paper charts will, no question about that. So having both, I think, is a good compromise. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you there, and you're right. There is a you know always a debate of over whether paper is necessary, and and you know at this that, this point that is each captain's choice. Um, but I do appreciate you explaining the need to know the basics of navigation, because I think that is important. Whether you're using paper or your electronic uh, charting, you you need to understand that portion of it. So I think I appreciate you um, bringing that up. Can you tell us? to take those basic navigation courses that you're mentioning, what kind of uh, time and cost investment are we talking about? Uh, you know, I haven't checked what, what we're charging in the power squadron for the uh, for those courses. They're generally around $100. Uh, as far as time frame, I think we teach that course in probably, um, probably about six weeks, like one night a week for mm -hmm. an hour, hour and a half. And they, a lot of a lot of uh, squadrons will have different different times, but it's it's not the kind of thing you would want to sit down on a Saturday and just try and do all this on a Saturday. That would be so much information overload. I don't think your brain would handle it. Right. And you you would be mentally fatigued at the end of it. So the way we've taught we've taught it is we break it up and we do uh, like a chapter a week, usually an hour hour and a half. Okay. And conversely, the NASBLA approved courses that are just kind of basic boating safety that we talked about at the beginning are typically one-day courses, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct in your experiences? Most, most, of, them, most of them are six to eight hours in duration. Mm -hmm. um, again, depending on the individual content of each provider. Uh, and most of the time, those are done in single one-day sessions, although I have seen some people do two four-hour days. Mm -hmm. Like they'll do a Saturday four-hour and a Sunday four-hour. But it, it just depends on the local uh, provider. Um, I know in Puerto Rico, the auxiliary teaches a, uh, a much more lengthy class because the Puerto Rican government requires a, uh, about 20 hours of classroom instruction, and uh, they do theirs over about a five-week period in Puerto Rico. So it just really depends on on the local uh, provider. Right. And I will tell our listeners, if you haven't taken an ASBLO-approved course, I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, but we have offered that uh, the day before each of our rendezvous in 2019, and we plan to continue that in 2020. Um, so a few of the things on, on Dave's kind of must-know and must-do list, which were to take that NASBLA course and to attend an AGLCA rendezvous, um, you can check off two of those at one time if you're planning to come to a 2020 rendezvous. So just a little bit of information on that. Um, We've been chatting for about 30 minutes now, and we usually try to keep this podcast, too, about that long. Um, so, Dave, what I'd like to do, we've still got a lot of ground to cover, so let's break this into a two-part podcast. We will uh, air the rest of it next week and finish this important discussion on some of the basics of what you need to know for the loop. So, Dave, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. To our listeners, thank you as well for joining us once again on Great Loop Radio. We'll be back next week with part two. Until then, safe cruising.